How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sasha Podcast, episode 232. Should I keep the sounds in from earlier, Zeke? No, absolutely not. No, definitely not. No, I've just started teaching podcasting as of today. Oh. And that would be a terrible episode starter. Oh, Would we not go. be what I would have been encouraging the whole time? Are you going to be doing self-referential lessons throughout this podcast, Zeke? Yeah, well, you know, I obviously leave perfect pauses to allow you to interject, but also... Also to allow... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Perfect pacing and chemistry. How are you, Jake? I'm pretty good. Um, It's been a long-ass week. It has. You know what? The last couple of weeks, obviously, you know, a couple of partners' birthdays and... yes. Um, you know, I'm going away soon, but also school's wrapping up and mm. you've got work R Us coming out of the wazoo, I assume. Uh, actually, it's, it, I mean, we'll get into it more maybe in career updates, but I've had some very interesting work developments in the last week. So you're right. It's going to get very busy very soon. Yeah. But before we jump into that, Jake, mm. do you have any interesting film trivia from the film of the week, Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind? I do. So, of course, I, one of the iconic things about the film and, and particularly uh, Clementine, the character of Clementine by Kate Winslet, uh, is her many, many different hair colours throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, blue, orange, red, green, etc, etc. Um, that can help you sort of track the timeline of events if you're really trying to pay close attention to that. Uh, but what I was thrown off by is that they are all wigs. And the reason they couldn't just dye her real hair is because of the schedule of shooting. They would have to change hair colors multiple times in a single day. So I was I was like, wow, well done. I wouldn't have guessed that. What about you, Zeke? What's your... Oh, I quite like that one. Yeah. Um, despite the fact Ch- Charlie Kaufman's script and Gondry's uh, visual concepts were closely followed, the cast were allowed many opportunities to improvise, which is really mm. interesting. Obviously, Elijah Wood uh, and Mark Ruffalo improvise extensively, and much of the dialogue between Kerry and Winslet resulted in, uh, from videotape rehearsal sessions, during which the two became close by sharing tales of their real-life relationships and heartbreaks. Oh, it's a quick one, way to do it. <laughs> though it has quite a comprehensive ensemble, does feel kind of like a tight-knit community, um, mm. which is really quite interesting, but we'll, we can delve in that a little bit more. Um, there's quite a few narratives going on. Yes. Um but I find interesting, obviously, being a Kaufman script, which are normally quite, you know, followed by the letter. It's, it didn't, doesn't matter quite interesting how much uh, freedom they were given. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, you look at his filmography. There's a, I mean, he's known for his wacky, crazy, quirky, unique ideas, uh, especially for a film like this that also has, like, the narrative structure is also really out there and, and very experimental in ways. So. Yeah. That is surprising to hear, that the actual dialogue itself is very improvisational. Yeah, no worries. Well, very Jake, nice. before we jump into that film of the week, mm. have you caught anything in the last week? I have. I watched all five episodes of the new season of Black Mirror, season six. And, um, man, this is its very interesting. Now, this this is all I've seen in the last week, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get quite detailed about all five episodes. I won't spoil them per se, because mm-hmm. I think a f- couple of them at least are very much worth watching. Um, I'd love to get your opinion on some of them. But it's interesting because you got Charlie Brooker. I'm pretty sure he's written every single episode. Okay. It's always his name of the, in the credits written by. And if you look at the original thesis statement that he, he gave about the show, and of course, you know, the title Black Mirror, it's re- the, your reflection on like your phone while it's off, and th- this idea of how does technology 
sort of impact our lives. And I think the way he specifically described it is, is if technology was like a drug to us, what are the side effects of that drug? Mm-hmm. And that's the entire premise of the show. Despite the fact that it's an anthology, every episode has a different story, different characters. That's the through line. Yeah. And this season, he is straight up like throwing that out the window. And he's being open about it. He's saying that he kind of wants to try and do that. He doesn't like the fact that the show is now like, phones a bad show. And I get that frustration, but I'm finding it more frustrating watching the latest season of Black Mirror and feeling like, why are they still calling this Black Mirror? Like, some of these episodes are just straight up like, you know, like a 70s horror slasher spoof. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how's that Black Mirror? It's interesting. It's fun. It's a lot more, like, supernatural and kind of funny. And not that Black Mirror isn't funny at times. But I was really thrown off by this identity crisis, I suppose. Um, so I'll go through the episodes in order, I guess, how they're listed. Is it still an anthology, though? Yes, yes. yes. So it is very much, in terms of the structure, it's very Black Mirror. You know, every episode is very unique and different, different characters. There are little things here and there. So I know in the Joan is Awful episode where they, they have like their version of Netflix, which I think is called Streamberry, there are like little references to like Bandersnatch in there and you will see a couple of little like the same. I think the, the robot from Metal, is it Metalhead? One of the o- older episodes mm. shows up in another episode this season. So it's like there's all little tiny visual ties, but it's still that anthology. They're still very different. The problem is that not all of them have anything remotely to say about technology and how it affects our lives, which is upsetting because this season, what, the last season was four years ago. We got Band of Snatch in 2018, we got season five in 2019, and then nothing for four years. This is the first post-COVID Black Mirror season. So you would think there's a lot to say about that. Yeah. I really found the only two episodes to really dive into this was Jonah's Awful, which feels like the one where they just had, like, all of the ideas over the last four years of, like, oh, let's talk about, you know, AI and, like, the, the Netflix algorithm of, like, content and deep fakes and, and actors giving their, you know, personas. Out. Like, let's take all of these ideas yeah. and just kind of mesh them together in this episode that is otherwise very sloppy structurally is, is how I felt. The whole premise is that this girl sits on the couch with her boyfriend, turns on Netflix or Streamberry, and the the first show that pops up is like her life one to one recounted as like a as a a dramedy Netflix series, and it it turns out to be this whole commentary on again like what our phones are doing in terms of the the lack of privacy that we have now mm-hmm. holding those and the fact that they're sort of feeding to this big content structure of how people are always wanting to watch things that are very negatively crafted and like character assassinations. There's all those ideas in there, but I just found so many. I was just like, but why so many times? Like, oh, why does, like, the character on the show says a thing that gets her fired in real life? Like, but why? If this is the reason that this is happening, why doesn't she just, like, leave her phone by her bedside and then go about her day? Like, that would literally solve the problem. It's like, I, and I hate that those are the kinds of... you're addicted, Jake. I know, but it's like, <laughs> I know that's probably the, the intention. But... I, I get it. But it's, it just feels more messy, right? Like yeah. Not, like it doesn't know how to articulate its own message. I was surprised that Charlie Brooker wrote some of these episodes because I was asking those kinds of questions quite commonly. And I'm someone that actually really quite enjoyed the fifth season of Black Mirror. I know a lot of people think it, it started to die off a lot earlier, but I was I was very staunchly like, I, I think the show's still great until now. 
So those were the kinds of problems I was having with Jonah's Awful. Uh, the next one is Lock Henry, which is a bit of a slower, grittier take. It's like a, a Scottish uh, folk tale uh, serial killer in the 90s, and, and now we're in the present day, and these two young uh, filmmaking students are going to make a documentary mm-hmm. on it, and the, and the guy of the relationship is... He, he's closely tied to it in that his father was sort of one of the victims of this of this serial killer. So it doesn't really have much to say about technology. It's more so about us as the audience watching crime dramas yeah. and how that those crime dramas are uh, sensationalizing these killers and, and all it does is hurt the real victims even further. So I, I think that kind of helps it still be a Black Mirror mm-hmm. episode because it's commentating on that and like our media consumption and again a little self-stab at netflix um but i also just really enjoyed the episode there's a montage of them just you know shooting interview subjects and getting drone b-roll and editing on adobe premiere which i was i just loved (laughs) it was just so like especially given the events of the last week well exploitative documentary aspect mm, yeah well we're we're gonna see a lot of uh (laughs) we're gonna see titanic 2 very soon i imagine Yeah, oh, it'll be in next year's episodes, season six. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Jesus. So that, like, there's that tie to it, which I thought was quite interesting. The other one, and this is sort of the most COVID-esque episode, is the Beyond the Scene. Now, this is the one that stars Aaron Paul and Josh Harnett, which I think a lot of people have been pointing to as their favorite. I think this is very clearly the best one. It it has that really interesting Black Mirror twist and commentary on on technology, but it's also just a really well thought-out story. It takes place in an alternative 1969, so unlike some episodes we're going to talk about, it doesn't just set set the clock back in time and then play. Like, there is an alternative twist, and this one is that they've created technology where astronauts in the late 60s that are up in space, they have replica bodies that they can essentially send their consciousness back into, so they can spend most of the time still with their families, and essentially their consciousness will be sent back up to space if there's like some sort of maintenance issue or they need to redirect something in the mm-hmm. ship. Uh, so that's kind of the premise there, which I think is really cool. And, and what it ends up being is a bit of a, a straightforward sort of love affair triangle situation, but it's using that, that technology to sort of uh, to mold and propel the story because there mm-hmm. is that aspect of your brain sort of masking what you would usually see as an affair, but the person I'm looking at looks exactly like my husband. So, you know, how much of an affair is this? There's, there's that technological aspect to it that makes it more Black Mirror-esque. Yeah. Um, and I even just love the visuals of it because it's late 60s, but they're using the Manson family iconography. They're using that whole space intrigue of that era, which we talked about um, when we are talking about, like, uh, Apollo, Apollo 10, 10 and, and a half. half. Yeah. yeah. Um, even just like 2001 imagery in the spaceship where there's like splashes of red hidden amongst all the white padding. Yeah. Um, I, I thought it was really excellent from that standpoint. So that's definitely the episode you need to... I just lost my voice then. What happened there? <laughs> uh, that's definitely... You need to grow up, Jake. I know, apparently. <laughs> so that's the episode everyone's going to point to. It's followed up by what I think is easily perhaps the worst episode of the entire series, Maisie Day. This is when it becomes very apparent that they want to remove themselves from the technological angle. So this one is about paparazzi. I thought, that's awesome. Like, what can you do with paparazzi in Black Mirror? Well, let's set it in the future. Maybe they all have, like, this futuristic gadgets. Maybe we do the whole episode from the viewpoint of someone that, like, had a very simple mistake or accident that people want to cover. Now she's getting hounded by, you know, these paparazzi groups that end at least a tragedy. 
Makes perfect sense. They even mentioned Princess Diana two episodes earlier. Nope, that's not what it's about. It's a very boring <laughs> cat and mouse game. We follow a very unlikable member of the paparazzi that, you know, feels bad about what she's doing, but is just still doing it, doing it anyway. anyway. Uh, not once, but twice does she find her subject by just overhearing things while ordering food, <laughs> either at a cafe or a diner. It's like, really? Like, how does the digital camera she's holding have anything to do with this? Like, her ultimate motivation is just money. Like, oh, I'll get $30,000 if I snap this shot of, of this, like, drug addict actress. Oh, it's like, that, this is a problem that's been around for a lot longer than, <laughs> yeah. than modern technology has. And then, without spoiling it, it ends on this really weird supernatural twist. And I'm like, okay. All right, you've, you've jumped the shark. This is... <laughs> Jump the shark. Oh, there you go. God. Hot take from Jake. Well done. Well, I don't think I'm the only one that's used that terminology for this show, yeah. which is, yeah, unfortunate. I was just baffled by how much I disliked Maisie Day. It ends on Demon 79, which was the, the English slasher spoof I referred to earlier with its loud musical stings and there's, like I said, no tech whatsoever mm. uh, in the episode. Totally fine. Quite enjoyed it. Quite humorous. Uh, even as a madness on in there, which is great because literally I had 15 minutes left of the episode. Kirsty arrives. I was like, oh, do you want to just watch the last 15 minutes? Which, yeah, sure. And then the second I hit play, a madness song plays, <laughs> which is her favorite band. Perfect timing. There you well go. done, Black Mirror. So I thought that was like, that was fine. It's not Black Mirror, but I enjoyed, it's an enjoyable watch. She's a demon comes and says she has to kill three people. And, you know, she's a mild managed shoe assistant salesperson that, you know, learns to let free and murder people. Yeah, classic fun tale. Totally linked to Black Mirrors. <laughs> yeah, I I think that was my takeaway from this whole season because I did sort of binge it all in one big go. And I'm just like, why even call it Black Mirror anymore? Clearly, like these are the stories that that Charlie Brooker wants to tell now. So just make it another show. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like I I, I don't know if it's like all the same production crews. Probably not. I mean, maybe within the season no. it is, but... And you know what? You benefit from that because, you know, you, you take a sh- series like mm. Love, Death and Robots. have had mm. three um, series and I guess everything sort of fits into those three categories, Love, Death yeah. and Robots, but it's just whether, what degree those have. Like, right. Um, it's essentially just science fiction, the anthology, really. <laughs> um, and... And now, be... now this doesn't even have that to go because it's like that last episode is not science fiction whatsoever. Yeah. So, well, that's really good to hear. Mm. Um, I've caught a couple things in the last week. Yep. Um, I touched on uh, kind of a film that I don't know if it's a bucket list film, but it's a film that I've always been intrigued by. Okay. Um, it was Gary Ross's Pleasantville. Um, yeah, I did notice you saw this. And this is sort of one of those films that, yeah, you just don't really... You see it, um, I think we might have seen a couple of shots when we were doing our film degree, and you're like, oh, that looks really interesting. Yeah, and it was it was actually on TV the other day, on Foxtel. There you go. Um, but I haven't seen it still, I just so, I just noticed it. Yeah, I gave it a watch, obviously stars Reith Witherspoon and a, and a young Tobey Maguire, mm. who's pre, just about to get into Spider-Man at that point, um, mm. and... Look, what can I say? It was a perfectly pleasant film. It's <laughs> sort of a film that sits in the same realm as a, as a Truman show. I don't know if you've ever seen the film, Jake. 
Um, no. But no, it I've centers, seen Truman Show, of course. Obviously, but... it centers around a brother and sister who are twins, but couldn't be further apart. Mm. Um, get sucked into a 1950s, uh, late 1950s, uh, like a feel-good family sitcom. Right. And um, both take on the brother-sister combo from the show. And obviously, it's a very... It's a safe and kind of clean film and, and definitely has, like, really kind of cool allegories of sort of the evolution of of um, of culture that occurred in the early 60s, particularly mm. with race. I mean, they there are lines such as, get that colour person, but it's not in the... Right. It's not in the... It's that double entendre because obviously people start... As they start to mess with the show, people start to turn into Technicolor. Ah, uh, okay. Um, and okay. That, that's sort of what they're going for is yeah. this break in this, this post-war um, 50s America, which, you know, we've talked a little bit about with things like Apollo 10 and a half where, mm. you know, the, the post-50s world where everyone was happy just to be out of the war led to this rapid political... Um, change and movements that occurred in the 1960s and the film is trying to embody that while also just teaching us about you know like this building of of valuing your family and stuff Mm. very similar to things like i said like um kind of like the truman show has got like the controlling destiny aspect and then the marty mcfly appreciating the family in in back to the future which is such a through line of that 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 film and yeah it's just a it's such a good when you get a film like that you're like that was so nice to watch. Mm, like, very nice. I don't need to see that in another 10 years. But if I saw it again, I wouldn't be, like, adverse to it, you know? Right. Yeah. No, I I do. It does look intriguing, and you're selling it on me, because that sounds awesome. I'd love to check it out. Yeah. So, yeah, that that has been sort of on a bucket list as well. It's definitely my letterbox watch list. A perfectly pleasant watch. Ah, uh, very cheeky. The other two things I've watched uh, is The Art of Not Giving a F. Um, so is this, that a of not giving an F? Is this based on the book it's that was written, or what's what's the? Is. So, um, it is. It centers around Mark Manson's uh, book, um, okay. and it basically just stars Mark Manson. Mark Manson is essentially just doing what feels like a condensed audio book of the okay. book. <laughs> Obviously, this this book was written by um, a man who essentially just developed his own way of thinking. It, it was almost a manifesto to his own thought and mm. it ended up being commercially successful and, and this documentary essentially is just embodying that book in a in a visual sense which yeah. you know has led to pretty harsh critiques of it I think as someone who hasn't read the book mm. I didn't dislike it a lot I thought it was fine it was a bit um, a, a lot of the footage is is it's essentially him giving this piece to camera for the whole thing and there's a couple of like um, you know, sort of Dick Johnson is dead, dead sort of over the top um, scenes, of right? Like okay, things happening and he's in them doing them, and but then most of it is just um, random stock archival footage mm. supplementing it, which sometimes makes sense. Sometimes it feels like it's trying to be artsy and it doesn't really get the same thing as, as something like Dick Johnson is dead, which mm. I thought was incredibly effective with the way it was tackling something that was let's be real was was so simple i mean it's mm. just a, a documentarian interviewing their dad yeah their elderly dad and yet we both thought of that film so highly because mm. of its sort of perspective on death and life and i think the cons- the, the the themes and what he's saying is actually very thought-provoking and, and good but 
like I feel like the feedback is is kind of true that obviously it's essentially just the audio visual companion to the book, right? Because yeah. what's he saying on the camera is nothing different to the book. Mm. So, um, how do you judge something like that, really? Because you know, I personally haven't read the book, but now I don't feel like I need to. Right, if you feel like the core sort of message has been through. Like, I guess, I mean, that's similar to what I said to you a few weeks ago when you finished The Last of Us, the HBO show. Of like, I feel like that's a faithful enough adaptation. You don't need to play the game to know what the story is. Yeah. And there's obviously little slight tweaks and changes, but it's like you have experienced that story. Yes. So, I again, I haven't read nor um, watched the book. I bought the book for a few people as, as presents. <laughs> Just the close of a relation as I have to that, that book, but... Yeah, it, it, but it sounds like to you, especially compared to Dick Johnson is Dead, that like visually it could have gone a little further. Yeah. Some I mean, of the representation of the ideas. There's something else that was there mm. too. Um, okay. Whether, whether it's seeing maybe the following Manson's effect of the book more mm. than... And integrating, obviously, his theology and his consensus, but actually looking at how did this book become so successful? What right. was the, the, the cultural impact this book had on particularly young adults mm. who felt a bit lost and directionless, which is clearly, I think, the demographic of the book. Yeah. Um, I think that that exploration would have been more interesting, whereas essentially we got a guy who's just telling us about his book. Um, and that can at times feel <laughs> Buy like... Buy my book. Essentially, yeah. It can sometimes <laughs> feel like that's a bit grandiose and a bit selfish and actually right. kind of polar opposite of what the book's actually trying to... Oh, sort of get okay. across. So maybe that's why some people had an issue with it. Yeah, potentially. Um, the only other thing I caught this week was uh, She Said. Oh, damn it. I was I was planning to watch this. Yeah, <laughs> I okay. ran out well, of time. Yeah. Well, we can dive into both of our opinions. So, you know, we're both pretty pro on these, these journalism caper, sort of exploring a scandal. Is it Spotlight-esque? Is that the... Yeah, intention. but yeah. nothing really is as good as Spotlight, is it? Sure, sure. Um, but in terms of the structure and like I, who we're following, yeah, I, I think there's some good bits in she said. I mean, obviously we're we're essentially following the 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 New Yorker's way of breaking um, the news about the sort of sex scandals and power dynamics of the Hollywood system, yeah. particularly um, with its center point being about Harvey Weinstein's. Yeah. This is a very fresh and contemporary film and mm. follows two key women who key women journalists who are sort of heading, heading it and talking about why they think there's a really powerful conversation that occurs so early in the film. And I don't want to spoil too much of it because sure. I do think you should watch it. I definitely will at, watch it. Yeah, it's good. I don't think it has for me things like I thought the cinematography was fine, mm. serviceable, but not on the spotlight level. I think some of the, the grittier, maybe it's the grade, maybe it's the the way that the camera moves in spotlight, mm. the flow, the fluidity of, of back and forth dialogue. Right. It, it works really well. Mm. Also, the performances are just top notch from everyone in that film. Mm. Um, I will say, I this is funny. The one thing I can say about this film because this was also on TV recently. Well, I think it, I think it was on a Netflix on a TV that I walked past, but so it was mute, so I couldn't hear anything. But I saw a lot of like a lot of dollying shots, a lot of like pushing in on characters as they're sitting in seats. And I was like, the camera is moving quite a bit, but not, not that it necessarily flowed between cuts. It's just something that I noticed when it was on TV yeah. the other day. And I'm not saying, um, you know, I was just checking. So it's Kerry Mulligan and, mm. um, Zoe Kazan and I'm just, they're very strong performances, but, and they have some really good, like I said, philosophical debates. Like why, 
I think there's a really good one early on between the two of them where, you know, they've been responsible for exposing sort of the sex scandals of presidential candidates mm. like Donald Trump earlier. That's actually kind of what the prologue is to the film. Is okay. That's sort of the origin story of particularly um, Mulligan's character. And that that's quite interesting because she's the one who asks earlier on, like, why are we focusing on the Hollywood system? Because mm. these are the rich, the wealthy, the... They're kind of disjointed from society. Why do we think it's important to expose that rather than things like in the corporate world, people that are more everyday people? Sure. Um, and the consensus is the fact that if it happens to the untouchables, then it happens to everyone. Right. I think that's the, There's that lingering effect um, or the um, pass down effect, I suppose. It's cool because it's kind of like the difference between this and say something like Spotlight is Spotlight's very much a news paper journalism caper mm. sort of film whereas this definitely integrates because it's so contemporary it brings in things like skype calls and things like that so it has that yeah. more modernistic touch to it which is kind of cool it's cool we don't really yes. see that in in well the only other films that come spring to mind are films like spotlight or obviously the post which is significantly older mm. and like date well it's a period journalism caper and and then even um bombshell which is yeah i was thinking of bombshell that's um, another one but even then, that's not even so much about journalism because we're following the perspective of the women that are sort yes. of in it. Whereas this is a this is purely journalism doing their work yep. sort of film, with their their own like consensus obviously and their philosophical, which they have some really good dialogue. The dialogue's probably one of the strengths of the film. Yeah, for me, it was the only the only like kind of like eh, I thought the cinematography was fine, serviceable. Okay, fair is, enough is what I'd say, but definitely still worth a watch. Because that got nominated, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think it did, sadly. I, I remember when this came out, and I'm pretty sure we would have read it on this podcast. It was coming to cinemas. And I did want to go to cinemas, and I didn't have time to. And it sort of came and went. And I and to be fair, it just came to Netflix very recently. A lot of people have seen it since it came to Netflix. So it seems to be having a bit of a resurgence in the, the public eye. In fact, I'm going to... You probably already know. I'm going to check its letterbox score right now. Three and a half. 3.5. Very... Yeah. Very good. That's where I sat. Nice. There you so, go. You are lying with the majority, Zeke. Yes. Did you hear... So, I don't know if you know this. In the last week... So, of course, we did Across the Spider-Verse a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. One of the big things was that that was number one on Letterboxd in terms of the top 250 list. They have since changed the algorithm for how it averages people's scores for films. So, they almost kind of responded to this Spider-Verse number one spot with... We're going to change some of the rules. And they were very vague about what they did specifically, but it's completely reshuffled the list. So it's really fascinating. And really? there's, a, yeah, and there's a bunch of films that just, a lot of very contemporary sort of like Guardians 3, for example, knocked way down on the list. So you notice if you check films that you were familiar with their average scores, a lot of them have changed significantly, which is really interesting. So films like Come and See which used to be like a 4.5, is now a 4.7. And I think some of the factors is that it doesn't take into account, if you've reviewed the same film multiple times, I think now it's only going to count your most recent review to yeah. the average score. I mean, little changes like that they've done to account for, frankly, how popular the website is now. I mean, Letterboxd, I think, now has 10 million users. Seems fair to me. We, yeah. It's like the spam score thing, you know. We're a trying little bit, to, yeah. We're trying to make it so everyone only gets one vote. Yeah. I'm sure you could create infinite accounts, but then you're you're a bit <laughs> fanatical at that point. Yeah, I, I mean, the, it's the, like everything. I mean, we talked about come and see, you know, last week. Mm. So it's like 
And we're sitting here going like, well, that film probably does deserve to be as high up on that list as, <laughs> as it actually is. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like it, it was in the number two spot for a long time, snuck into number one before Spider-Verse came in, and now is back in the number two spot despite the reshuffling of scores. So I think that's really interesting. What's Come and one? see. Is it number one now? What's number one now? Oh, it is. I know this. It is a samurai film. And I'm going to have to just check it real we we'll get the elevator music going. <laughs> but that's all it I watched. It is Harakiri. Harakiri is now number one on the spot. Twelve Angry Men in the third spot. Yes. So it rose the ranks. Uh, Parasite is still number six, so that's keeping strong. There is actually there is a big list on here. Oh, I think they've updated it because it's been a week since the last update. That a huge list of like all the films that got knocked out, all the ones that were brought back in. It's really interesting. Spicy times. It is very spicy times. I just wanted to sneak that in because that happened in the last week, I'm pretty sure. Well, Jake, have you got any career updates for us? I do. So I teased. You did tease. That something happened in the last week. So, of course, the VR company, Your World VR, that I've been working at for the last couple of years now. Been a long road, the startup. Yes, it has. Uh, We made our first sale in the last week. Very exciting. <laughs> me popping the imaginary champagne. That's me blowing the little um the thing. The little toot, yeah. Yeah, little toot. <laughs> little toot. Like yeah, no, that's um it's it's exciting. So that that was Congrats. I toast Thank my you. imaginary Yes, glass my imaginary glasses. Clink. Me with my sale, you're with your new car. Yeah, I got a new car. Very nice. Pretty sick. I'm a grown up now. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also I did do some film work for the Academy of Dance and Elegance Media Concert Ooh, on the weekend, so I do actually have nice. a career update. Yeah, can you believe it? Can you believe it? I want to give a shout out as well to someone else who's had a career update, Mr. Stephen Clark, who we've had on the show a couple of times now. Yes, he started a brand new podcast. There you go. What's you, it called? It is called Dramaturgically. So there's a little uh, a cheeky wink to the uh, Jeremy Strong fans out there from Succession. <laughs> Um, but yeah, he's doing very short form, like 15, 20 minute reviews of classic, classic foreign films. Um, I'm actually just going to get a list up really quickly of the kinds of films he's been doing. He did Ace in the Hole, which I think is a Billy Wilder film very recently. Here it is, dramaturgically. Uh, let's see. He's done The Return, Local Hero, Black Jeez, Narcissist. He's already got a lot of episodes. I think he's been doing one a day for the first week. So he's almost at seven episodes already, which is very exciting. And again, a lot of these are quite classic uh, foreign cinema. So a lot of these, I'm guessing, are from his Criterion collection. <laughs> so if you need a sharp, sharp and concise podcast, mm. check out Stephen Clark's Dramaturgically. Very, very good. Yeah. I reckon the, uh, <laughs> the optics on that... <laughs> The ops exist. They're good. They're good. They're very good. Uh, They're we good. should we should try and get a spot each on that podcast. Yeah, I don't think I could talk smartly for fifteen minutes. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? You're talking smart for an hour and a half on this That's show. True. This is true. Well, I've been talking for an hour and a half. <laughs> Speaking of talking for an hour and a half, Jake, it's time for us to move into the film of the week. But what are we watching this week on the show, Zeke? We're watching Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Time, by the way. I'm Joel. Hi, Joel. No jokes about my name. You like? Oh. You look like a tangerine. I so want to be a great big oh. 
huge elephant. You're trying to figure out, did I have sex with someone tonight? And how do you get people to like you? Here at Lacuna, we have a safe technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories. Is there any risk of brain damage? Technically, the procedure is brain damage. But it's on a par with a night of heavy drinking. Nothing you'll miss. Ah! My head already hurt. That baby's history. It's all being wiped away. They're erasing you, Clem. You'll be gone by morning. Whoa, careful. What? What? Step back. Roach the guy. I loved you on this day. Please let me keep this memory. The eraser guys are coming here. Wake yourself up! We're working like gangbusters. I need some more deeper. Can you hear me? I don't want this anymore. I want to call it off. He's up in that. Seem to have lost him for a moment. Oh dear. Joel Barish, heartbroken that his girlfriend underwent a procedure to erase him from her memory, decides to do the same. However, as he watches his memories of her fade away, he realises that he still loves her, and it may be too late to correct that mistake. We probably should have done this film on Valentine's Day. <laughs> Last so, I checked, Jake, we're in two happy relationships. It seems like an odd film to do on a Valentine's Day. <laughs> no, but it's, it's just, I don't think I've seen a film that takes place on Valentine's Day this often. This is true. We get multiple Valentine's Days in this film. This is true. This is true. <laughs> we could just do Valentine's Day. That's true. That is true. <laughs> and die and cry. Oh. I'm not a fan of that film. Oh, my goodness. I am a fan of this film, though. Mm. Been a fan of this film since the moment I saw it. So, when, when is the first time you saw it? Uh, year one film school. Really? Yeah. So, what's that? 26, 7, 6, 2017. 2017. Yeah. I saw this. Jeez, I've known you for six years. That's wild. I know. That is wild. And this has been running for most five. of that time. <laughs> <laughs> this is just oh, our relationship. Exactly. So, you can see if this show stops, we're not friends anymore. That's actually how it works. And <laughs> um, uh, just like 50 years in the future, someone hears that, like, oh no. Yeah. But that's not true because the episodes will still be going. Yeah, I was going to say. It'll be like a time capsule. Exactly. Film is a time capsule. It'll be like um, coins. Like, it'll be like, oh, man, that vintage 2018 year. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, season three was so much better than season 55. (laughs) That's what we say about Simpsons now. It's almost there. It's almost 50 years. Yeah. So, what about you? When was your first time? I'm trying to rack my brain because I did watch this very young. Yeah, I've definitely seen this film multiple times. I remember the last time I saw it. It feels like a while ago. Mm. Um, it is a weird one, I think, for me as, like, say, an 11-year-old, 12-year-old to watch a film like this because I think it goes far deeper than my brain could have possibly comprehended at that time. I think for me it was literally just the Jim Carrey factor of, like, oh, it's him in a serious role. So yeah. even, even, like, the novelty of that was something that intrigued me at well, such a young age. That definitely... Because it, I think I did this and Truman Show almost like back to back. Interesting. Because it was that I've never liked Jim Carrey as a comedic actor. Right. And then I saw this film and I went, man, they can do it. He was the first comedian or comic actor that I saw do something serious. Right. And I went, I want to see that more. And I was like, oh, well. Because I always thought comedic actors are just comedic actors. You know? Right. The typecast. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, like, you know, if you think to the 90s and the, the aughts in particular, a lot of them were kind of shoebox and penciled into those roles. Mm. There wasn't as much diversity. I mean, you carries up until pretty much 
Truman Show, and even Truman Show, he still got the Carryisms. I guess man, uh, maybe, sure, yeah, maybe um, Man on the Moon with yeah. Kaufman. Um, but um, yeah, I would because that that's his sort of. I mean, we saw the documentary. That's him like embodying that role. Yeah, even though I still think there are some Jim Carryisms in that performance. So but then maybe this is it. This is the first real serious one, and. and it's the same thing with like Adam Sandler. I think when mm. we see him in something like Uncut Gems, but then even then he's got the Sandlerisms to him. Yeah, well, I, th- I think the big distinction we need to make here is that there's a comedic actor doing like a more serious role, whether yes. maybe play like a detective or something like that. This is this is a comedic actor doing a role who of, of a character that is so depressed. Yeah. And so sad and so lonely. And, and I think that's not a big humorous part of it. at all. Like, no, he's, he's, no, not he's funny unrecognizable in this. Yeah. It's not. Yeah, that's 100%. He's unrecognisable. I mean, he is devoid of anything that defines him as Jim Carrey in this film. Yeah. The, the closest you could argue, and and this is just him trying to be funny to his girlfriend in the moment, is when he's, he's like, oh, I'm, oh, okay, I'll just wake up. I'll just wake up. And he, like, tries to lift his eyes up. and But even, like, that's not, like, a Jim Carrey-ism because, like, he's still restrained in, like, that, like a, the, a normal Jim Carrey comedy, he would be going all out with his body motions, trying to make a fool out of himself in that scene, and even that is restrained. Yeah. So I think this is him really, really, really utilized. And we saw in that same documentary, the Jim and Andy, where he's the story of Michael Gondry, you know, telling him like, "You look so sad. Please stay this way <laughs> until we make this movie." Yeah. And how messed up the industry is that we allow for these kinds of things to happen. But like, he portrays that sadness so well and yeah. i think he is really unrecognizable in this film yeah and it's i mean most would probably say it's still probably the best performance of his career yeah i mean it's a career definer i mean it's one of kate winslet's best performances and that's mm. kate winslet i, I think mean, she's actually said that it's her favorite performance yeah which i'm surprised by because she's pretty damn good in steve jobs yeah but that almost feels like a transformation role yeah. but then even with her casting i find it interesting because i definitely wouldn't have thought of kate winslet if i was zeke if i was the one casting this film yeah and we got to give praise to the person who cast this film because it's a damn good cast it's a it, it's a cast it feels like such an odd box like it like it feels like that cast could only exist at that time in that place <laughs> because if you waited even two, three more years, it just wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. It would just never happen. Yeah, exactly. Just because, like, the different level of stardoms that are going on. But, yeah. Yeah, because you've got... Like, Kirsten Dunst, Elijah Wood, Mark Ruffalo, and that's, Tom Wilkinson. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you look at it, and you've got a Scars Garden there, too. And Ah, oh, good catch. Um, <laughs> and you're right. I mean, you've got Dunst, who's, who's in, in the middle of the Spider-Man films yes. at the time. So... I think two is just about to, or has just dropped at this point. Yeah, it's same probably, year. Same, same year. year. Yeah. So she's at probably the peak of her mainstream popularity mm. at that point. Um, Ruffalo isn't even in the conversation for an MCU no, role. No, certainly not. Um, so he's not the Mark Ruffalo we know today. And I love um, how scrawny and like small he, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he nerdy is. he is in this role. I love Elijah Wood's probably at the peak of his mainstream popularity with the Lord of the Rings That's films. Right, they would have just wrapped at this point. They would be in the midst of that. Probably, oh, the they probably because they did. I'm pretty sure shoot two and three together. When when oh. did the last one come out? 2005. Oh, okay, okay. Return of the King. Oh no, Return of the King's 03. Sorry. Yes, oh, you're well, right. there you go. So they were done. Yeah, yeah. 
Interesting. I'm now not sure. No, that sounds right. I think it is 2003. I mean, I'm not a Lord of the Rings expert, so that's probably the one film I couldn't tell you when it came out. But but to your point, like... Yeah, 2003. And, and it's also post-Titanic for Kate Winslet. Yeah. So, so it's like, these are all actors that are really in interesting parts of their careers all coming together. And like you said earlier, it kind of does feel like a little tight-knit family of actors. The one little fun fact that I read, I could have used it at the start of the show was even though we don't see Kirsten Dunst and Kate Winslet share a scene together, their characters have most certainly met. You know, if Clementine had got the procedure done, she would have had to have interacted yeah. with uh, with Mary. Ah, look, Mary, Mary Jane, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Same name. So No, you're 100% right. There, There is a lot of cross-sections with a lot of these. They are actually all involved in each other's lives, at least in yes. this chapter, and obviously with memory being such a key forefront. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's really important to consider that. Um, so Jake, I mean, mm. obviously, like you said, it's been so long since you watched the film. I don't know when was the last time you you watched this film. How yeah, did I it could sit not with tell you? you? Um, I think it definitely holds up in so many ways. Yeah. And I think I think the thing that really stuck with me is just how fantastic the narrative structure, the non-linear narrative structure, is. Um, just the experimentation in terms of merging all these ideas and concepts together. But at the same time, it's an incredibly tight script. I mean, it's about, what, 100 minutes, 105 minutes. Yeah. Uh, we just listed off a great cast, but it's like uh, all the characters, they're all like perfectly interwoven into the same story. You got your Charlie Kaufman-esque, like, oh, here's like this crazy thing where it's like you can you can sign up to have part of your brain and memory removed. It's like there's the the there's the Kaufman we we all know and love, but it's through a script that as experimental as it is 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 quite consumable. So I I was really blown away by that aspect of it. I was also trying to keep track because I know since I've last seen it, there's a whole you know manic pixie dream girl mm-hmm. sort of uh, archetype that is that people have pointed out now. And I actually think this film goes a little out of its way to almost comment on that. I don't think that was a term when the film was made, but I was trying to look out for like, okay, well, how is Clementine, like as a female character, represented? Especially because at the start of the film, she it's almost like she's kind of throwing herself at Joel and she's overly bubbly and, and extroverted and introverted. And so I was kind of, keeping my my finger on the pulse for that one Mm -hmm. and there's literally a line later in the film where she says too many guys think i'm a concept or that i complete them and that she's sort of against this idea of being wedged into a box and i was surprised i was like wow like even even she has a great arc there and the fact that she has she feels ugly and that goes back to some uh like her childhood fears that she had and so i i think from a lot of aspects i was shocked at how well the film held up How about, how about you? What was your sort of... Uh, you haven't seen in a few years, I suppose. Yeah, it's been a, definitely a couple of years. Um, I think it saw its last thing in my 365 challenge, maybe, mm. or even earlier than that. Um, it's not actually a Skarsgård. It's Tom Wilkinson. Always getting uh, okay, He I looks kind of like... Um, is it Stellan, who's the oldest? The older right, one? I think, yeah. He's anyway. the one in Dune, I think, Stellan. If yeah, I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it kind of looks like him. There you go. So it's Tom Wilkinson. My apologies, Tom. Mm. Um, I'm sure you'll Tom's upset. Me. I know. I'm sure you'll <laughs> me. No, it definitely holds up. It's interesting. Films are such time and place. Mm. Watching them, it's you know we we talked about 
um, 500 Days of Summer on the show, and yes. I think that that film I, I liked more the first time than I did the second time. But Interesting. Um, it's also that aspect of, you know, both now being in these, like, longer-term relationships. You know, you watch a film like this, and it changes your viewing experience. Not in a, in a negative way. I still think this film's amazing, mm. and if anything, is actually celebrating the value that relationships that even in, um, even when they're ended, there's still redeemable aspects to them. And, um, the concept of forgetting someone existed just to not deal with that heartache mm. and that energy is, is so, such a real human dilemma. We have all been plagued with yeah. at some point. Um, and it's such an interesting thing. And I think a younger Zeke would have been, uh, was in love with this film for a completely different reason, I think, than, a, than a, an older Zeke. Um, and it's, but then that's the same effect I feel like with the, the before series is like, we're going to watch those, old, those films as those, as um, those two get older and, and we're going to have completely different feelings about sunrise and midnight I'm sorry, sunset and midnight. Yeah. Um, as they get to thirty-two and and forty-one, and as we align with the the ages those characters are in those yeah. films. Yeah. Oh god, great films. Um, but what Gondry's <laughs> done with this film is is he's incorporated that like, like I said, it's got this dynamic and massive cast, but it feels like such an indie film in its experimentation yeah. and it's 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 sort of quirky plot and characters. I mean, you know, we've got characters that while carries in this unconscious state and they're going through his mind they're there smoking weed and drinking mm. on the job because and nonchalant dancing and, in their underpants over yeah. his unconscious body <laughs> which is a great contrast to when we meet them and and this film goes out of its way even though it is that kooky kaufman-esque crazy idea they legitimize it in that there's a receptionist there and that there's people with all sorts of different uh, you know, reasons to be there, whether, you know, a pet died or, or relationship went bad. And then there are people that have it done over and over and over again on the phone. And then there's the whole medical process of, all right, we're going to explain to you what this is and this is how it affects your brain. And now we're going to do, you know, the object association where we're going to pull all your objects. Like there's so much time spent to almost like grounding it scientifically, mm-hmm. which I, which I absolutely love. But then when we actually see the process being done, they're all chaotic animals. They're drinking and smoking weed and they're having sex on top of his body. And I mean, that was a deleted scene, but they do have sex at one point. <laughs> I think it's really funny. So you're right. Like juxtaposition is really yeah. humorous with these quirky characters. And, it's, and you got Elijah Wood, who's just a creep. Um, <laughs> who's obsessed with um, Kate Winslet and is actively using information to... Mm sort of manipulate the narrative and um i think that you know some of the beauty aspects of this is you know obviously this is years before inception exists but we start to mm. see that sort of mind logic and how some aspects of the real world correlate to the this dream state that carries yep. in and um like I said we're moving that's through. true they're very visually similar as like things are falling apart and like you know, we're getting rain indoors. I didn't even make that connection. That's a really yeah. good point. Yeah, and it's it's ahead of the ahead of time, isn't it? Really, mm. when you think about it, and and obviously the non-linear narrative, the fact that it's it's so chaotic and shouldn't be easy to follow, but it is pretty easy to follow um, mm. because of the seamless transitions and the 
the pretty masterful editing that's occurring and um we are seeing some genuine performances you know we're talking about this is like one of carrie you know if not carrie's best general like acting performance mm. but it's definitely on pretty much everyone's highlight reel um in terms of their real and their authenticity or their their creepiness or or because they're gifted moment they're all gifted kind of blossoming blossoming payoff moments yeah at some yeah. point not just Winslet and Carrie. Um, well, that's it. You have a bunch of side characters who you who you think are just serving, you know, this grounded idea of like let's try and ground the the, the medical procedure procedure to some point. So let's have these people who are experts and know how to do this, and they're going to sneak into his house to do it. But then, like you said, you're kind of blindsided by that they all have their own arcs that are all related to this idea. And of course, like you said, with Patrick essentially just being a creep and and trying to use all the information he learnt from, from erasing Clementine's mm. memory to get with her because he's just a lonely creep and he doesn't know how to get with he's girls. He's like Denny from The Room. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. He's the, yeah, he's the Denny of The Room for this film. That's that's brilliant. I wish he was cast in it instead of Elijah Wood. <laughs> I just like to watch you guys. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. But what I love is that Again, and we and we can get into like Mary and and the affair that he's trying to have with I think Doctor Howard and, yeah. and how that all plays into its own thing. Um, but what I love as well is that that Clementine knows deep in her heart that something's wrong. Every time Patrick, uh, you know, rephrases a line that that Joel used in an earlier timeline, or he's trying to take her to romantic places. I love the the big sort of ice. Um, block that they walk on it's mm. just visually so beautiful especially with the little the car headlights and the darkness just above as they're lying down the crack that they're lying next to it's such an iconic image but as he's trying to redo all of that she just senses like something's wrong something's mm. happening my my brain can't handle this and and i love that that kind of feeds into the overall message of the film is that even though you can wipe your memory from it you still feel that emotion and you just don't know where it's coming yeah. from anymore and this idea that by erasing your memories, you, you're just you're going to repeat the past in so many ways. I mean, it goes obviously the title um, "Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind." It comes from the poem that's actually read in the film. Yeah, by or, Dunst. It, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it's just another way of saying ignorance is bliss. Yes. Now, let's get a little philosophical here because I think you've hit the nail on the head in terms of, sure, we can rewatch it from a more analytical point of view now that we're older, but we're also in very different places in terms of the relationships we have with the people around us. So yeah. I, think, I mean, it's a big part of, of rewatching this film and having that context. This phrase, and I think it's very, very important for this film of, it's better to have loved than lost than to never have loved at all. Would you say that's something that's very much explored in this film? Absolutely. I mean, mm. the, the, the 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 pain um pain is is a part of our existence mm. and it's it's a it can be used in an empowering sense i mean i can flat say that it's it's so strange cuz i you know if we have that that thing it's like mm. have i ever loved someone the way i love the person i love now no mm. not even close no one holds a candle to it but um, I can say that I thought I knew what love was before, right. but you never really know that. And then, you know, you, you break up and you fall apart, but it's like, you know, after one breakup, I'm there. I lost like 10 kilos in two and a half months and put on, mm. like just worked out a lot. Was I 
healing. No, I, in fact, I was, I was in the uh, three, four month uh, spiral for a, for a bit, but you're just in denial of it because I was trying to not allow myself to feel mm. anything. And but then a moment, you know, a moment clicked, and you just embrace it. You em- embrace that that happened, and then before you know it, you you have moved on, and you find yourself feeling connections with new people hopefully yeah. the right people and but it's interesting because i would never do it i've often sat there and i i've sat there when i was younger and i watched this film and and well it's one of those keeps you up at night moments you start mm. thinking about it and then oh it's two in the morning yeah. kind of moments <laughs> i've just thought about like what if i had done this thing at 16 or 17 yep. or 18 and 19 and and then you go, oh, well, you wouldn't have anything the same way now. But, and then you need to just, what that is, is that's your brain being like, oh, well, do I ever want to, am I acknowledging all of that pain, I guess, mm. all that, that heartache? And, um, well, fair enough. I, th- I think that that's the point of the film is you, that defines, helps with our identity. Yeah. People help with our identity, whether they leave our lives or they enter it and, or they stick around. And that's the thing, because, like what you're describing there is this idea of opening your heart. You're opening it to heartbreak. Yes. And that, that that's evident. And then I imagine like the more, the more heartache you go through, the longer it takes for you to reopen your heart in that sense. And I feel like I've definitely had that moment very overtly in the last few years. And I feel like every time I get really bogged down in something or feel busy or feel like I don't have time to myself, I remind myself I was like, well, this is the decision I made because I, yeah, and it kind of perfectly aligned with COVID when I hit this point where I graduated, I wasn't working, I wasn't in a relationship. I just had all the time in the world and it was great, but I knew that that wouldn't sustain very longly. And mm. I, I knew at some point I had to reopen my heart. And and that includes obviously uh, finding work and finding purpose and all of that, but it includes relationships as well. And that's something that, you know, it's the risk reward factor. Absolutely. Of, you know, I've I've now entered into this relationship. I'm I'm so so happy to be in, and it's like, yeah, there's every chance that anything could happen. You know, anything yeah. could happen. But like, I have made that decision to allow myself to be in that scenario because I think it's worth it. It's yeah. worth it for the relationship that I'm in now, and that I'm betting on will last for the rest of my life. Yep. And I think that's what this film comments on so perfectly. There was an alternate ending I read where it jumped forward in time to an elderly or a much older Clementine who was signing up to have a procedure done. And we see on the screen that she's had like dozens and dozens of procedures done over over the last 50 years or so. And I think I read conflicting things because one said that only Joel, Joel was only one of the names and the other said that Joel was virtually all of the names on there, which I, I think that's also a, a powerful ending they could have gone with. This idea that they're now stuck. A pessimistic ending. It's much more pessimistic, the fact that they're stuck in this cycle now of never learning from their heartbreaks. But, and I I do really like where they leave it off, where it's like, okay, well, well, let's keep it nice and simple. This is them. They've had that second Mm. meeting and they they found out what happened, but they're going to give it another go, potentially. You've just touched on something there. Never Mm. learning from your heartbreaks. And I think that's a really interesting point because that's sort of... I think the the thesis statement in a sense mm. is is this whole treatment is like you said denying that learning experience. They rather 
completely cancel out that pain and suffering yeah. but not learn anything from mm. it and then that's coming through as as joel's getting deeper and deeper and these memories are starting to erase and he has that um massive talk to the, obviously the sky to the gods of 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 that way and he's wanting out of of mm. this procedure at that point subconsciously and you're 100 percent right because what this is 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 it's abolishing any learning experience yes um and that that definitely comes in the last minutes when they both randomly back up, end up at Montauk, the most yeah. irrelevant. And <laughs> Montauk gets a lot of love in this this uh, it it does yeah this, this film. But yeah, I think that's it. It's the denial of a learning experience, and I think that's what I was sort of trying to. That's definitely like the personal aspect is obviously you have a bad breakup and you go oh I'm just gonna I'm fine I'm fine. And it's mm. like you're not fine, and it's okay to say you're not fine, and it's okay to just honestly not wallow in yourself pity but like just be okay being upset and then learning like learning where things went wrong and then moving forward which obviously is much harder to say to to the heartbroken in the the moment of (laughs) that's the whole point it's an erratic decision yeah um because he has no other support and positive relationships around his life i mean he's got a roommate well not what was that a roommate or it's like a friend who's sort of Oh, the Naomi character, who I don't think we ever see on screen. I think it was sort of alluded that they were were engaged at one point. I think there were some scenes that were removed that were meant to clarify, and I think that's actually part of the reason they broke up in the first place, um, Joel and Clementine, which I think the final cut actually doesn't really explain the final... Oh, I mean, we see the the scene where they they break it off or she breaks it off from him. Mm. But the the catalyst to that, the very specific one, I think was sort of removed from the cut. So I, I think that's where they were going with the roommate. I think that was definitely a, a, a word for something that was a bit, bit more meaningful. Yeah. Definitely a girlfriend of some kind. Um, and maybe that's, a, that's, a diff, that's the different film there is that, is that mm. isolation. But as you say, like you, as you're saying, you like, you open yourself up to being loved, but also open yourself up to that vulnerable state. And yeah, while doing so, you're getting deeper and deeper into that relationship. That relationship becomes more and more about your life, whether you like it or not. Mm. I mean, that's just how it works. I mean, when you meet the right person, you start spending most to all of your time with that person. Mm. Not because, you know, you're obsessed with them or you're clingy. That's just how life works. That's the whole point. No, you find your person and you <laughs> want to spend as much time as possible with that yeah. person and, and build your life with that person. And I think that's what's so brilliant about... We talk about non-chronicle uh, structure, mm-hmm. and this film very much is non-chronological and sort of all over the place, intentionally, of course. But the one through line we do have is that they are erasing his memories backwards. And they say, okay, we're, we're going to start with the most recent memory and then work backwards. And I think that might have been the recording on the tape, but that's how the film is edited also with his memory, because we start with their final fight, where they essentially broke up, and then we're working backwards. And what I love is emotionally, we start the procedure with their most vitriolic time together, and we are slowly going back to their honeymoon stage at the beginning of the relationship to when they met. And I love that because emotionally, it's sort of welling you up. Of the further you get in, the more you realize, like, oh god, what am yeah. I doing? Um, but it also has like that. It leads to the midpoint twist where Joel's like, I actually don't want this. I don't want to erase this memory. I changed my mind. And is, is it too late at this point? 
So there is absolute brilliance in what feels like a chaotic structure, but is actually a very intentionally crafted yeah, absolutely. structure. It's a, it's a organized chaos. <laughs> the best kind of chaos. Yeah. Uh, unless, you, unless you're the Joker or someone like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, and let's get back to the Mary and Howard situation that we alluded to earlier, because going back to your point of like breaking the cycle where you, re- you refuse to learn from your mistakes or refuse to, yeah, to learn from mm. your heartache. She's the only one who actually does. She does. And, and what I commented on earlier, well, what I typed earlier on my notes watching it is that when she listens back to her own tape and she realizes, oh, not only have I been in love with, with let's call him Dr. Howard, but I actually was in love with him for so long that I've had my memory erased and then just fell in love with him again. And even listening to those tapes where she's saying, I was trying to impress him and appear smart. It's like, that's literally what she was just doing in the apartment so like that's the cycle of her she's just falling in love again so she makes that decision to just send everyone their tapes it's like hannah baker yes (laughs) here's your tape (laughs) here's your tape joel and clever who's quoted 13 reasons why in the last god knows how long jeez we have many times that show exists oh my god oh no I like, I like when the guy goes to watch 2001 A Space Odyssey and leaves in the opening credits. He's like, I can't do this. It's too boring. I need to rewatch. Well, not rewatch. I only watched, what was it, the first two seasons and then the first bit of the third season and went, this is crap. I'm done. But I've heard that fourth season just goes mental. Yeah, it's pretty mental. They start doing like the horror imagery yeah. where like Bryce comes back to life and there's slugs coming out of his mouth. And it, dude, it's it's wild. Yeah. I I watched that whole series. I, I watched that whole damn did. series. <laughs> that, whole, that damn smile. Oh, oh god, so what yeah. a, what a fun time! I gotta. So let's talk a little bit about those surrealistic elements. Yeah, because it's not even just the editing. There's a lot of times where camera tricks. Camera tricks. You're right. And there's one especially that I love where he's in the library and he's completely dumbstruck by the fact that Clementine doesn't seem to recognize him. So he runs towards the camera and then we end up in the living room. It's all this seamless shot where I guess like the whole thing is on a set. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least they, they did it in a real library and then built a set within the library to do that transition. And I guess this gets us to talk about Michael Gondry, who who I guess was the main showrunner and director for Kidding, which was the other Jim Carrey show recently that I thought was excellent. I loved it and I was so sad to see it. It just kind of ends after season two. I don't think they got picked up again. But that show also had that same inventiveness of just how do you do all sorts of camera tricks, very lo-fi VFX work mm. done on the computer. I think a lot of the uh, Texas swaps with like Jim Carrey. I mean, we did it on Faces in the Crowd where I think you dressed up as James in the reverse shots. Yes. So like your shoulder would be his shoulder. And I'm pretty sure they did a lot of that in this film as well, a lot of the Texas swaps. Shout out to Faces in the Crowd. Shout out to Faces in the Crowd. <laughs> uh, now on YouTube. Start, start of a great career right there. There you go. <laughs> Still but, ongoing, technically. But, but to that point yeah. where it's like tricks that we did in our second year uni film are being implemented all over the place in yeah. this film. So I think that, that speaks to... Obviously, there's the inventiveness of Charlie Kaufman to structure the film the way he does. But in terms of keeping in line with that, with the camera uh, and, and the direction, I think Michael Gondry does a fantastic job yeah. and, and he i think he's a big part of why this film really works like the glue that sticks all this craziness together absolutely or like the one where um joel's under the table uh, it's a... that's a great scene <laughs> yeah. 
even just yeah like the the size like the disproportionate size yeah. because he's clearly like an adult body but like shrunk yeah the forced perspective yeah exactly um yeah it's really clever i love i love that stuff that's a lord of the rings trick that one it is it is um Good job, go. Peter Jackson. For the dwarfs one. Yeah, exactly. Peter uh, Jackson was on set that one day. Yeah. It's like, yes. Because <laughs> they're nice. in the sink as well. and that. But I see that that's interesting to me because I'm wondering, is that just a gigantic set they're in? Because they're, I they're doing... I think some over... of it might be. I reckon some of it would have to be. Um, but that shot in particular, you've got the mother's shoulders and they're like more proportionate yeah. to the size. I'm like, how... On... How on earth did they do that? Yeah. <laughs> the so cinematography curious. in this film. I mean, you brought up the sitting on the ice scene, but there are so many beautiful, beautiful shots. Yeah, yeah. Throughout the film. Um, I mean, when Dunst is reading The Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind, there's the yes. beautiful bokeh going on in the background mm. and the movement around people. And obviously this film is so focused on people's minds, people's relationships. It's, yeah. It, I think it's why one of the, it's one of those films that, I cannot think, I cannot fathom anyone who dislikes this film until I checked Letterbox. Abby King gave this two and a half stars. And I'm I re- okay. I remember this years ago. You yeah. finding her at, I guess, the, the cadge. Yeah. And just like, you take it into a big debate about the I remember this. <laughs> yeah. That seems about right. But Abby, I don't mind name and shaming Abby. That's fine. I'm okay with it. I'm willing to. <laughs> She's allowed to dislike to the yeah, film. Yeah, she is. Absolutely, as we just talked about it on the uh, off the show, that everyone ha- is entitled to their own opinion, even when it's wrong. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, no, it is very fair. I can kind of, I could see some rationale, but yes, um, I think it's a gorgeous. Well, do film. do you remember specifically what some of that rationale was? I think it was the because it felt like it was sad and and depressing, but mm. being like intentional. You know, how, like it's that woe is me sort of cinema, right, which. It's well, I that, was I I do think exists. It mm. doesn't exist in this film. I think this film's actually celebrating uh relationships in a lot of ways, for better and worse. Yeah. Well, I, there's definitely that aspect of I mean, I don't I don't finish this scene thinking like, well, I'm just never going to get into a relationship. Yeah. Like that's definitely not the feeling I get. I think the ending, you know, you, you're talking about that alternative ending. Mm. That's the definitive sort of That's like the Black the Mirror sentence. version of the <laughs> Yeah, that's the, the full stop on the sentence is they're willing to try again and we're left hopeful that next this time will be different. They mm. will, like you said, learn from it. They probably won't because, like you said, their memories were completely really erased of their... They're only left with ghost sort of mm. feelings. Yeah. And as we see, Dunce repeats the same mistake. She's the only one that we know that definitively broke the pattern by, like, by releasing leaking. the tape. Yeah, yeah. The Hannah Baker of it all. Yeah, she just... <laughs> well, it wasn't Hannah Baker that released the tapes. It was the uh, it was the other dude. Oh, yeah, that's true. He was like the... Was she Tony. Did... Yeah, I think Tony just... But he just... <laughs> even the characters, oh my God. Look, I will, I will say about, I guess, that criticism... There are elements of the film that are melodramatic, but I feel like you kind of need that, especially the very opening scene with with Joel, with Jim Carrey, and like his voiceover, and he's talking about you know Valentine's Day. It's just a day graded by greeting card companies. It does sort of fall into that trap, but I think that's just to introduce you to that character. And with hindsight, what's interesting about that is that that those are the thoughts he is having as soon as he wakes up after after the procedure. Mm. because we we eventually find out that the opening shot of this film when he wakes up in bed is him waking up after the procedure's 
done. Yeah. Because then we associate like how his car got wrecked and it was actually Clementine did it way earlier, but he that whole memory, even though it would have been weeks earlier, that memory has been erased from his existence. I also love the detail he forgets the the song that Clementine references on the train because he's now associated that song that his mother sung to him with Clementine to the point where that song is completely removed from his memory as well. So I, I love that detail, but I, I think you need a bit of that melancholic sort of... Cause I think the first 10 minutes almost yeah. falls into that trap and then it completely switches it and reverses it. Yeah. Because it's, need... it's trying to portray heartbreak. Yeah. We all need that uh, that existentialism and philosophical <laughs> melancholy <laughs> talk. That is true. I want to give one little shout-out to another detail I really liked. Um which, well, what's interesting, so this is the music that plays when they first meet on the train, which obviously, of course, ends up being their second meeting. And I remember always, every time I watched this film, especially it contrasting with that, you know, depressing sort of melodramatic voiceover that Jim Carrey is giving right before it happens, is the music that plays when they meet. It's so, like, upbeat and kind of quirky and mm-hmm. fun. And I didn't realize this until I read that it's only playing during when they're speaking. And I think the initial idea is that the music would fill in the gaps of silences. And then I think Kaufman suggested, why don't you play it while they're speaking? And then when they're silent, the music's also silent. I was like, that's really interesting. Didn't even notice it when I was watching. There's such clever little nuances in this (laughs) film, isn't there? (laughs) Gotta love it. Yeah. It's got like the talking about life stuff that Before Sunrise has, but then Mm -hmm. it has the quirky sort of... uh, sort of artistic aspects to it too. Then meeting on the train is very sunset, uh, sorry, sun yeah. before sunrise-esque. Yeah. It's actually the whole, very similar. The whole, the whole theology feels like it's just out of <laughs> Jesse's mouth, doesn't it? This feels like Jesse's movie. Yeah, I know. He's he's pitching his uh, 24-hour show on the train oh, <laughs> to so Julie good. Delphi. I always figure Julie Delphi's in Avengers Age of Ultron. Who's she in Age of Ultron? She's the, when they flash back to like Black Widow's like training montage when she's really young she's like the like the commander there. the maitre d yeah, yeah 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 wow that's weird so she's in like four shots so i was like oh wow that's weird, that is very weird. <laughs> that's really weird this film feels like it's just like if you created like a crate of like romance like philosophical romantic mm. films you just put this in a crate with like this 500 days of summer before mm. sunrise and then maybe if you were being a little quirky, put a when Harry met Sally. <laughs> Boom. There's your, there's your four pack. Uh, if you, if you got this film in there, you're already feeling a little quirky. Yeah. <laughs> you definitely hit that bar. So, because obviously like you were, we were bringing up the manic pixie dream girl thing. Yes. Um, and we don't need to touch on that because I think you were, you pretty much hit the nail on the head because obviously that sort of uh, rhetoric kind of came in, what, years after this? Not even post, post 500 Days of Summer? Like... Maybe, yeah. I It's definitely after this film. And obviously, 500 Days to Summer, you're right, is one, is um a victim of this... Uh, I don't want to say a victim of this accusation. That's such a terrible way to put it. It's this, this, um, this, this caricature. Sure, sure. Um, And it, it, I think what's interesting is when I, I when I think about that reading of that character, I only really think about the opening scenes where she's essentially throwing herself towards... Jim Carrey and, and making those like kind of kooky motions as they're waiting for the train and then approaches him on the train and is like overly bubbly, invites him into the house, gets him drinking. It, you know, it feels all very, but 
I think that's recontextualized by the time you get to the end of the film because we see her in the present day, quote-unquote, with Patrick, with Elijah Wood, feeling just awful and uncomfortable and, like, something's wrong, just having, like, a panic attack, essentially. Like, I can't... I'm having all these weird emotions that I can't describe and understand. People people have erratic behaviour. Like, that's... Yeah. Yeah, well, I I think that that's obviously in response to she's having some sort of heartbreak from Mm -hmm. Joel that she can't quite figure out because he's removed from the brain. But I think what it is is... She's in this sort of awkward relationship with Elijah Wood and then she sees Joel who she has some sort of, you know, connection to even though she can't explain why. They've obviously had this history together. I think that's why. I think she's acting this way because there's something that she's drawn to about him that's not happening with Elijah Wood. That's not happening with any of the guys she mentioned that she never got procedures over. There's some sort of love there that she can't remove. Mm. She can get her brain surgically altered to try and forget about him in the details, but there's something about her heart that can't disassociate from him. She's attracted to him. So I think that the ending and that realization that that timeline is very late in the story of the film, I mean, that justifies to me her behavior there. Um, Again, I feel like I would need to do more reading on why she clarifies, as she identifies as a manic pixie dream girl. I is it just the hair color (laughs) is it because she's friendly is that the problem yeah don't be friendly don't be friendly yeah jake do you have anything else to add before we go into highlight scenes no i'm 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 happy to jump right into highlight scenes so what was your highlight scene you mentioned it a little earlier and i i reckon it's my highlight scene purely because it's the image that has stuck with me the longest with this film it's always the scene i think of when i think of this film and it is that one in the kitchen with the the um, forced perspective uh, mm-hmm. effects. Uh, I think are, they might even be... Are they in camera, those forced... Uh, th- I would th- say so, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Um, just that scene of, like, young baby Joel under the table, even though he's still in his physical adult body, but he, his brain is being altered where he's, like, trying to reach the top of the fridge. He's crying and wailing and, and is disgusted by panties <laughs> but then you've also got clementine who i guess is now like embodying this babysitter character that he like mm. fondly remembers um or vaguely remembers i should say and she's all like dressed in a very different kind of outfit and she's smoking and like oh this is so warped what's going on just like that scenario i mean that that's what i love about i love watching tv shows especially like i think last time i was watching an episode of futurama and I always love when you get to the second or third act where there's something like absolutely just crazy happening. Where it's like, oh, uh, the uh, Professor Farnsworth is like a giant Yeti now chasing people. And I always love the idea of people just clicking onto that mm. midway through the show. and be like, how on earth did we get to this scenario? And like working backwards narratively. Yeah. And I, I feel like this is one of those scenes where it's like, you start watching this film and then if you sort of fall asleep, wake up and you see that scene, you're like, how on earth <laughs> did we get here? <laughs> how on earth is any of this motivated? Yeah, so I, I think that's my highlight scene just because it's, it's stuck in my memory, my brain for so long that even even a, a surgical uh, procedure on my brain couldn't remove that scene from my memory. What about you, Zeke? What's your highlight scene? Uh, I'm going to go with, yeah, the, the Kirsten Dunst, uh, Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind. Poem read nice. meets with the visuals. Um comes at about the midpoint of the film mm. um we're seeing a lot of revelations with characters like you said joel has come out and said he doesn't want sort of things to happen at this point and i think it's just one of those beautiful sort of moments that we're we're told to 
like you said, obviously the point of the, the poem itself is to say that ignorance is bliss, but mm. it's kind of being countered with these beautiful uh, scenic shots and um, capturing. And I think that... Memories you wouldn't want to erase. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that that to me was the moment... The reason I picked that is not because mm. necessarily in the film uh, it's it's like the the most inventive, like, like the one you just brought up with the sure. forced perspectives or when the, the sort of the way, like you said, we're running through the library and then we're moving into these, these lounge rooms. Mm. It, it, it's a scene that to me was the, the buy-in for the film. It's that moment. I remember distinctly the first time watching it, I went, this film's like gorgeous. Mm. Like it's, it's amazing. You know, I could attribute to the, the small piece of dialogue where they're sitting there on the ice of that fantastic, iconic shot. Or mm. even the, the earlier scenes when you like you said, she's befriending him in this fluoro orange jumper yeah. and, and he's just in this monotone depressing and the way she literally breaks it. Well, she breaks the ice in that, that yeah. scene <laughs> literally do it. But yeah, the color um, is great when, when he's driving her for the first time, I think after they got off the train, mm. like the color differentiation between him and the world and then her bright colors really yeah. sticks out in that scene. Yeah. yeah no, this, the way this, this film uses color throughout the whole way, it's palette is in, in immaculate. It's mm. so deliberate and, it, and it's fantastic. But I just find that scene is, is so ethereal. Um, and Dunst, narrative uh, as she's delivering it is so she's such a nice voice yeah um and you kind of forget that because you associate kirsten dunn's obviously with her mary jane character and she doesn't talk much she doesn't talk <laughs> much film at all. and, yeah, and to be honest films. most she's such a she's such a second fit whereas she's so uh powerful in mm. this film um and actually like we said she's like a lot of the ensemble and particularly her mm. She is the third most important person in this film, and if arguably yeah. what she does, she's probably the most important mm. um, in terms of her impact on the world. And and I think, yeah, that that sequence is the moment where I truly fell in love with the film I was watching. Right. Which you don't get that in every film. I think. No. No. Yeah, I think we talked. I think I had a similar moment with things like Before Sunrise. You know, it's them sitting in the booth together, listening to that music, and just making yep. that awkward gaze at one another or or you know um even but for me it was that because we really get to see uh real at that point we've seen what carrie can do in that more depressed but reserved nature and it feels so foreign at first and you have to adjust because you're just not used to seeing that yeah every aspect of this film shines through for me i love that it's that scene that kind of gives you that feeling is one that is just very simple cutting yeah. yeah, there's no crazy camera tricks like there are like throughout the entire rest of the film. It's just a very simple. It's soft. Here's nature. Kirsten Dunst doing a bit of a monologue. Here's like beautiful visuals to to contrast with that. Boom! Like yeah. here you go. Here's the movie. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. It's basically giving you that, like you said, that thesis statement mm. in the middle. Um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Line is out on Apple TV. I think it is. I watched it on Amazon Prime. There you go, Amazon Prime. So there you go, it's included with Prime and wide release and in wide release, of course. I need that film on Blu-ray. Oh, Damn I it, Zeke, I need it. I've got it on DVD. Oh, so. nice, very yeah. good. Yeah, I, I definitely need to grab that film on Blu-ray. Well, speaking of Blu-rays and speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? There's only a few things coming to streaming. If you got binge, you got a few classics coming your way: A Nightmare on Elm Street, the original. Uh, all the President's Men, Blazing Saddles, which I've still never seen. So good. <laughs> I 
Very keen. Uh, the Fugitive, The Wizard of Oz, a bunch of stuff. I don't know about July yet because we technically do crossover into J- July later this week. So there might be a couple of things coming out on the 1st or 2nd. Uh, so I can't talk about that. You've got Saving Notre Dame coming to Disney Plus, documentary covering the aftermath of the devastating fire. Mm. Which uh, I'm, I know very, very little about the aftermath of that fire. So I can't say I do either. Yeah. So this documentary's for us, Zeke. Yes. And uh, we can learn stuff. <laughs> we can learn things. And coming to Netflix, Run Rabbit Run sees a fertility doctor played by Sarah Snook. Hey, look at her working already. Yeah. We love it. Uh, as she is unsettled by her young daughter's claims to have memories of another life, stirring up their family's painful past. Mm. That's like Sarah Snook having memories of another life when she was in a billion-dollar family <laughs> and got shivved out of it. <laughs> oh yeah, it's, yeah. It's like uh, where's Tom's Wom's game in this uh, in this stories? Yes, yeah, it's, it's like yeah, the child's is having visions of like Jeremy Strong, <laughs> the music swimming in like, the water. <laughs> Someone's gonna do that edit. I I just know they are. Now, before I get into what's coming to cinemas this week, I actually have something very cool. Mm. I saw a clip of it right before you arrived on our local news, and I was like, oh my god, Like, i got to give this a shout-out. So there is a the Strange Festival happening in Perth. Yes. Don't, don't quite know what that is, but it includes a bunch of screenings at a cinema. It is the Exhumed Cinema, which I don't know quite where that is. I'm guessing somewhere in Perth. Mm. Uh, that is playing, honest to God, real film reels in their projectors for the next... Well, it's for the remainder of this week. That's pretty cool. That is so cool. And, I I mean, we wouldn't know when the last time we saw a proper like film reel, you know, with the proper flickering sound effects behind yeah. us, like actually playing on the screen. I, I mean, maybe we can go and do a documentary with Hoyts. When did they make the switch to digital? Yeah. Because it would have been in our lifetime. Have to give him a... Shoot him an interview. I know that I actually thought that would be really cool, but so this cinema is doing a bunch of like, a lot of classics, yeah. and like I feel like we owe it to ourselves to try. I I don't know if I have time, unfortunately, but like I would love to catch one so of these. So that till the end of this week. Yes, so till next Sunday, the second of July. Uh, the screening films such as well, they're doing RoboCop tonight. In fact, it is in the next hour they're doing RoboCop. So probably write that one off. But later this week, they're doing event, uh, films like Event Horizon, Muppets from Space. Uh, Starship Troopers, The Princess Bide, uh, Bride, excuse me. Um, oh, Akira. No, that's different. I'm thinking of I'm thinking of the other one. Uh, Metropolis. Which oh, I know. Joyce. Hell yes. Uh, Face Off and Con Air. <laughs> see a Nick Cage ones. The one I really would love to see on Thursday night is Pulp Fiction. Now that would be pretty darn sweet. <laughs> and then there's other ones. The Rocky Horror Picture Show. The Iron Giant. So they're getting some animated stuff in there as well. Uh, Hairspray, A Dirty Shame, Pink Flamingos. They do have a bunch of John Waters. A John Waters event, they're calling it, uh, on the Saturday. And then other films like Natural Born Killers, Labyrinth. Um, Well, they're doing Metropolis as well on the Sunday. Oh. Very interesting. Is that like 1927 Metropolis? It looks like it. (sighs) That's pretty cool. So I wanted to give that a shout out because that is so dope. And I think I heard that it is the first time we've had... Um, in Perth, a proper film being projected on, in a cinema in over a decade. So that actually gives us a bit of a window for the timeline. Yeah. So 2010, maybe? 2008 is when they made the go. swap That's to the That's the sequel to X-Rental. What was the history of oh, movie cinema I like projectors? that. I like that. <laughs> 
So keep an eye out for that. Definitely look it up. It's the Strange Festival. It's just the cinema tab. It will show everything that they're playing over last week and, of course, this week. Coming to cinemas this week. Other than that, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny sees the iconic archaeologist race against time to retrieve a legendary dial that can change the course of history. He is accompanied by his goddaughter, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and squaring off against a Mads Mikkelsen. Not a character. No. Actually Mads, Mads Mikkelsen. Mikkelsen. Yeah, playing himself. Yeah. He's channeling <laughs> that Bond energy. <laughs> uh, so, look. Are you excited for this? I, I think I still am. I, I've avoided any uh, reviews, really. Right. Um, the only consensus I seem to hear is... Obviously, it's not as bad as Crystal Skull, but not mm. as good. It's weird because watching Crystal Skull, it was two thousand and what eight yeah. when that came out. So we're eleven. So that film, mm. I don't remember feeling like that film was bad until I watched it a little bit older and went, "This is not great." I never thought it was as good as the the first three. Sure, because yeah. I'm a I'm an advocate. I think Last Crusade's my favorite. Mm. Not that's not everyone's favorite. And I don't really like Temple of Doom that much. I don't think a lot of people do. I think people just a lot of annoying side characters. Not short round though. Yeah, he's not annoying. Certainly not. Well, I think he was annoying until he won an Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly everyone was like, "Ah, it's good." He wasn't that annoying, guys. I I didn't say anything. I. But (laughs) to be honest, I haven't given a lot of them a watch, and I probably will watch all four before this one. Yeah, no, that that would be nice because it has been a while. I'm in the same boat as you where I watched all four of them very young age. So it was hard for me to distinguish Kristen Skull from the others other than just like, I remember being really freaked out by like the the later alien supernatural yeah. stuff. But then how, is that really that different from the other three? And this is it. For me, when I rewatched it, it was the... It was that it was like the same problem I had with John Wick Four, mm. and I finally met someone who had watched John Wick Four and went, "That was rubbish." And like, I did uh, not like John Wick. You 4. found your person. I did, because <laughs> um, he just turns into Rubber Man. And I think in the fourth one, there is quite there are some really good sequences, but then there are sequences like when Shia LaBeouf's swinging on trees like monkeys. Yeah, that's and, another one I do. And remember. you're like, that's very silly. Okay, that's silly. There's a difference between like kind of campy fun. Yeah. And funny, like when, like in the first, was in the first one when there's the big German guy and he's like yeah. ready to beat him up. And it's and the plane shoot. propeller. Or yeah, the, the plane um, propeller. Yeah. Or like the guy with the sword and he just shoots him. Yeah, yeah. Like that's funny. Yeah. Whereas like there's funny and then there's silly, I guess. Yeah, and the swinging across the, it, it, it looks pretty. The, the, the fridge surviving the, the nuclear fridge, that was the other one i was thinking of yeah oh we should do we should do a cut between oppenheimer and then him, indiana jones surviving like the explosion swinging on the ceiling and then luckily landing on a jeep no one really cares about that sure that's fine because that's like the campy fun part that's yeah. where it becomes like a comic book yeah it's yeah it's like stuff like that i think there's a line or well, there was the ants too in the fourth one where there's these really big ants and <laughs> i don't even remember that i remember a lot from that movie <laughs> When Kate Blanchett's Giant like ants. fencing, oh, or oh, when they're fencing, fencing and it's yeah. between like two cars, and you're like, oh, I do remember that, yeah. yeah. That was when it got a bit silly. Yeah, it was around that time. I was like, all right, let's just start moving over to like Tintin and Uncharted territory. The video game Uncharted, yeah. not the movie. Yeah, not not the Uncharted movie. It's, it's weird. Instead of bad, I maybe it's yeah, or maybe it was the use of so many uh, visual effects too. It was that visual effects. 
uh, or like getting over the top of that. Whereas this yeah. one, I know this one's going to have a lot of visual effects. <laughs> it will, but like, yeah, hopefully you're right. They're not so cartoony as, as some of the ones were in, in 2008. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm curious. Well. I know the response from Can was very not amazing, but it also, it's Can, you know, so it's big blockbuster film. Yeah. Is, does that influence part of the response? Possibly, probably, but... Um, we'll, we'll have the wider audience, the wider film-going audience judge later this week. Yeah. Which I'm very excited about. Also coming to cinemas, we have Reality, which sees Sidney Sweeney as a former American intelligence specialist punished for the unauthorized release of government information to the media about Russia's interference with the 2016 US election. She's apparently great in this film. Very good. So I'm very excited to see that. Very exciting stuff. Is there anything else, Jack? There is. There is uh, Belle and Sebastian, new next generation, which is a 10-year-old city boy reluctantly spending his summer in the mountains with his grandmother and aunt, where he soon meets a giant dog with a heart of gold and vows to protect his new friend from his mistreating owner. It's actually a prequel to that new Will Ferrell movie, Strays, that's that's coming out later this year. And finally, only screening at Luna, I think just for this week, The Last Rider is a documentary covering the American cyclist Greg LeMond and his triumphant comeback story from the brink of death to his nail-biting race in the 1989 Tour de France. Sounds good. Sounds good. Very exciting. All right, well, we're not going to catch any of those next week on the show. No. But Jake, you did bring up a film that we're going to actually watch earlier. It's Predecessor. Oh, very Jake, good. what are we watching? I think next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark. A film from Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Archaeology professor Indiana Jones ventures to seize a biblical artifact called the Ark of the Covenant. While doing so, he puts up a fight against Renee, Renee, and a troop of Nazis. I think it's Renee. It is Renee. It's been a while. I, I, I love how it's like Renee and then just Nazis. Yeah, like not not a good thing to have behind you in the, in the sentence. We will we will <laughs> uh, have a look at that next week and we'll amend it. But it has been a long time since we've watched it. That's true. I I am excited. Like you said, this could be part of our rewatching the whole all four films before yeah. we potentially do the next Indiana Jones. Very enticing. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs>